Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Napoleon. General, we are discovered. Good. I'm not built like other men. Generals gathered in their masses. Move along now. Those in power only see me as a brute, unfit for higher office. But I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. Evil minds that plot destruction. If you look down, you'll see a surprise. Once you see it, you will always want it. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Napoleon. The story is as follows. A look at the military commander's origins and his swift ruthless climb to emperor viewed through the prism of his addictive and often volatile relationship with his wife and one true love josephine the film is starring joaquin phoenix vanessa kirby and tahar rahim it is directed by ridley scott and it is written by david scarpa here to join me today for this podcast review i have dan bear destiny has brought me this podcast and we also have Tom O'Brien. Hi, everybody. Oh, man. There's a lot of good one-liners in this movie. I could find a way to have them seep into this review somehow. <laughs> Matt, you think you're so great because you have boats. <laughs> I am having a succulent breakfast. <laughs> I'm enjoying my breakfast. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you would think that we're we're reviewing a comedy over here. And there are times where Napoleon does tread that line. Uh, This is the latest Ridley Scott historical epic, which at 86 years old, or 85 years old, rather, he's about to turn 86 in a couple of days, um, is unbelievable to me that the man is still pumping out movies on this size and scale. But hey... When you have a studio willing to give you the money for it and he's able to strike a distribution deal with one of the streamers in the process, I suppose then one of the uh, studios would be willing to take that risk. So this is a uh, production here from Sony and eventually it'll be streaming on Apple in an undisclosed date. But it is playing theatrically through Sony at this current time. Running it over two and a half hours with a production budget that is close to $200 million dollars. Napoleon is someone that definitely needs this kind of treatment. He needs an epic scope. He needs a large budget. He needs a filmmaker who is familiar with doing these battle scenes and an actor with the range and caliber of someone like Joaquin Phoenix to be able to convey all the complexities of who Napoleon Bonaparte actually was. 
there's a lot to cram into this movie. And from what we've been told, 157 minutes is not enough. And there will be at some point a four hour version of this movie apparently released on Apple TV Plus, which if you are familiar with Ridley Scott historical epics <laughs> or just his filmography in general, you will know that sometimes the director's cut is worth waiting for. But we are here to review the theatrical version as it is right now. Uh, Napoleon has been a supporting character in many a television series and also film. Famously, Stanley Kubrick tried to get a Napoleon uh, biopic off the ground, uh, was unsuccessful in doing so, although that did become Barry Lyndon at some point. But here we finally get the movie that should stand as the definitive Napoleon Bonaparte biopic. Is it? Did it meet all of our expectations? Dan, what do you think of what Ridley Scott has given us with this? Oh, Lord. Well, look, I going into this screening, not knowing what it was going to be, I, I think had me a little more hyped up for this uh, movie than I would have been otherwise, because just something about the fact that it was Ridley Scott, the fact that it was Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon and the look of the trailers and stuff that we had seen, I just had this feeling that there was good there was going to be something surprising about it that there was going to be something that was that they were hiding in the marketing and lead up to this and i genuinely think that there is <laughs> in that this movie is not at all what i think anyone would expect from a napoleon biopic it very much is taking the piss out of Napoleon to the point where it almost seems like a takedown job. Like usually the problem with biopics is that they are hagiographic. Hey, they just like burnish their subject into someone beyond reproach and just this great person and there's no two ways about it and, and this is kind of like no napoleon was a piece of shit like this this guy really this is the person that everyone is obsessed with really and that tone i think results in the movie's most fun moments, which I also happen to think are its best moments. I think it's best when it's leaning into this takedown of Napoleon and because it almost becomes like this satire of great man biopics in a way because it takes all of these things that are supposed to in these movies become big moments and these epic things and it just kind of deflates them and i felt that happening throughout the movie and it took me a while to realize i think what the movie was doing but once i did i, I was fully on board with it the problem is <laughs> is that ridley scott 
while he has a sense of humor, I think he's also actually really invested in making the actual great man biopic of Napoleon. So the tone just never quite settles into something that works for everything. And that's ultimately what keeps the film from being great for me. I think it is a fascinating movie. I'm really excited to talk with you guys about it because I think the ways in which it's flawed are really interesting and fascinating. And I, I can't wait to hear other opinions on them. Yeah, I have some comments here based on what you've said so far, Dan, but seeing as how we only have Tom also here joining us, too, <laughs> let's hear from him before I chime in. Tom, what did you think of Napoleon? Well, it is it is a conglomeration of different movies thrown into one. But, Dan, I think you may be onto something about about the the great man takedown. It is fascinating because the framework that uh, David Scarpa, the screenwriter, and Scott have put together, you're right, is exactly the framework that a great man movie would have. But it's, you know, I think it's it's not, it, it puts Napoleon down, but Joaquin Phoenix is such an interesting actor, and his Napoleon is such a mess that it becomes, it, you, you, you get intrigued by this guy. You know, how can he be so at wit's end in his own private life and be such a brilliant strategist. Uh, he is the kind of personality that not unlike um, certain politicians we have today, it's never his fault. It's, there's always someone else to blame. And in that sense, he's a very big baby. And Phoenix plays it that way, which is always kind of intriguing, but it does at times veer into camp. I think, frankly, there's more camp in this film than there is in May, December, <laughs> because, you know, because the the, the, the agreed, Tom, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the lines that it, 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 there's a there's a lot of Scott, the House of Gucci Scott here. Yes. Which is an interesting blend of the two worlds that he's been working in recently. The, you know, the gladiator Black Hawk Down world and then the Gucci world. And uh, it's a tonal clash. And sometimes tonal clashes kind of become more interesting because of them. Unfortunately, I don't think that works here. And it becomes kind of a jumble of tones and shifts. They wind up getting whiplash in terms of what is it now? It's a, you know, the battle scenes are so impressive in this, which we'll get into. And then we'll get into um, the kind of kinky sex that's going on between Napoleon and Josephine. And it just seems like several movies clashing together and I'm not sure it works. So, but again, like Dan, I'll be interested in seeing what the discussion brings. So like both of you, I went into this, uh, with not high expectations because I'm very familiar with Ridley Scott's output and I know what to expect at this point. It's either going to work or it isn't. And most of the time lately, I find that I fall into either the camp of that really worked and that's one of his best or this was so close on the cusp of working and there are elements of greatness within it. But it's just missing the mark. 
And Napoleon, to me, is a handsomely mounted disappointment. It is fascinating, I think, because I don't know who to blame for the tonal clash. I don't know if I should blame Scott. I don't know if I should blame David Scarpa. I don't know if I should blame Joaquin Phoenix. It almost feels like at times, and I remember saying this about House of Gucci too, it feels like everybody was on a different level than the other in terms of how they wanted to approach this material. And this is what you get when all of them seem to be clashing with one another. Heck, I don't even know which of the two I even prefer, to be honest with you, if I like the more serious, uh, epic, brutal scale of him as a conqueror and wanted to see this as a straight drama, or did I enjoy (laughs) the utterly absurd and ridiculous lines of dialogue that Joaquin Phoenix says in this that had me rolling in my seat laughing harder than most comedies have this year. I I honestly don't know. Uh, But it did provide for a very odd movie-going experience. Now, I definitely agree. I cannot help but feel that, especially living in the era of post-Trump, that this is a movie that is definitely calling attention to today's world leaders who have... No business uh, being fit to rule in terms of their temperament and how they conduct themselves as uh, as a person. They might be good in some areas of whatever it is they're doing politically, in this case with Napoleon as a conqueror, uh, but otherwise, uh, petulant man-child, essentially. And yes, I agree with the whole taking the piss out of being a great man comment. I actually do think that is deliberately what all three of those uh, individuals I mentioned were all trying to achieve here was they were trying to tell a biopic about somebody who on the surface, you would look at them and think to yourself, wow, what an amazing thing this guy accomplished here. I mean, like that's pretty insane that he was on the verge of being ruler of the entire world (laughs) and to rise up the ranks the way that he did and to do it all uh, within a short period of time too. I mean, It's pretty fascinating stuff, and there's a lot of history here. I I really don't think two and a half hours was enough to convey all this history, and a part of me also thinks, too, that the only way that this could ever really fully work is as as a miniseries. So I am very eager, to be honest. Like I I, I will say that at first, when I first walked out of this movie, I was so disappointed uh, with the end result that I didn't want to see the four-hour cut, but now that I've I've been removed from it enough and I've had time to let it sit with me, I'm now at a point where I'm like, yeah, you know what? Let me see this four-hour cut because I would like to know if that does fix some of the problems. Uh, You know, something like uh, Kingdom of Heaven from Ridley Scott. Terrible theatrical cut. You watch the extended cut and it feels like an entirely different movie. And it works. So... I'm being optimistically hopeful when I say that, Um, but as is in its current form, there are some really impressive battle sequences. Um, I think Joaquin, he's good, not great. I do think he's let down, like I said, by the clash in desirable tones here in terms of what the screenplay wanted, what he and Ridley read into it. And Vanessa Kirby, who... I was really, really hoping that she could be the standout of this movie and steal the movie 
from Joaquin at times, but I just think she's underutilized, actually, and there are large sections of the movie where she is not as dominant of a figure as I think the movie and Ridley Scott and everybody else thinks that she is. So nothing in this movie ever fully met my expectations other than the battle scenes. That's where Scott, I think, is at his absolute best, operating at the peak of his technical powers. And there's some stuff in here that was truly like I was watching. It was like, oh, my gosh, like I miss I miss watching Game of Thrones for this reason alone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But going back to uh, Vanessa Kirby, I actually want to kind of start off with her because we talked a lot about Scott. We talked a lot about Joaquin. I didn't hear you guys mention Kirby so much, but maybe that speaks to my point, which is that I don't think she's as prevalent in the film's narrative as the film makes her out to be. And when she is there, she's, you know, like you said before, Tom, like there's kinky sex between them. I wouldn't call it kinky. I would just call it we're watching Joaquin Phoenix rail her from behind viciously. And then beyond that, he like ridicules her, tells her that she's a whore for cheating on him and she's crying. And I just didn't find it to be this empowering like Lady Macbeth like she has complete control over him type of performance as I was hoping I'm Bruce Martin host of Pit Pass Indy each week I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. It's frustrating because I feel like I feel like the script didn't know what to do with Josephine. But and it's so obvious that they should, right? Yeah, they they should at least have some conception and I'm wondering I I can only assume that the 4-hour cut um does a much better job with their relationship. I I can't help but feel that that is the material that mostly got cut. I agree. Yeah. Especially since it just seems so confused, and I think Vanessa Kirby, from at least the looks of this cut, is kind of stranded. Like, she's very good in each scene at putting across what she needs to pull across, but she can't make this character, as written, feel like a believable person. <laughs> no. And I think that Eva Green's character in Kingdom of Heaven suffered from a very similar problem that I I do agree, maybe an extended cut will fix this. But one thing that you guys did say that you didn't nail is that I think this movie hammers home that the reason why Napoleon was driven to succeed, the reason why he was such a good military strategist, or at least what the movie wants to present to us, was that he was driven out of his own insecurity Mm. to win over the affection of this person who... At times he had under his control and other times he didn't, but she had such a hold over him that he would 
enslave the entire world for her if it were enough. There even comes a point where he deserts his troops to go back because she he thinks <laughs> she's cheating on him. Yeah. I mean, that is the hold that she has on him. I mean, the, the disappointment I think I have in the Josephine character is that I think early on she set up as being the person who, if, if Napoleon is brilliant in military strategy, she would be his equal, if not her, his superior in everything else. And that would, that seems like a logical character uh, arc, but the movie doesn't really show that. No. And I kept waiting for scenes like that and they just weren't there. Or like we were saying before, maybe in terms of bureaucracy and, you know, handling stuff within court and things of that nature, maybe she's the one who is governing when he's away. I, I didn't see any of that. Yeah, it was really disappointing how underutilized she was and just how, like, they really couldn't decide if she was supposed to be Lady Macbeth or Lady Rosaline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just like, you should know. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned him in the uh, opening, too, as far as just being a billable name in the cast list, but. Tahar Rahim shows up throughout the first act of this movie, and then the movie just completely forgets about him. Yeah, that was disappointing. But you know what was not disappointing was Rupert Everett. Yes. Well, he's who I was not expecting to show up. But he also that the other thing, like when he comes on and he starts talking the way he talks, I'm like, oh yeah, no, this is this is a comedy. <laughs> this is clearly meant to be a comedy. I really liked Rupert Everett in this. Um, I also really liked. Oh, what is that actor's name from um, Dan, the, the the butler from Saltburn? Oh, yeah. I, I love that he showed up here. I do not remember his name. No, um, I don't remember either. And it's going to bug me now until I find out what it was. But uh I really, really enjoyed his presence throughout here. I Although I started to get confused at a certain point. Like I was like, wait a minute, is he his brother? And then it was like, it didn't seem like he was exactly. And I was like really confused over, because they kept mentioning that Napoleon had, uh, what was it, two brothers or one brother? One, I think. Yeah, it was one. Okay. And I thought he was supposed to be that character, but apparently Matthew uh, Needham uh, is playing the brother instead. So anyway, this movie like just doesn't does, like it really doesn't seem to care about its supporting cast across the board. It, it's the Joaquin Phoenix show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because when you see the end credits and all the people who are in it and given sort of supporting actor billing, I, I hardly remember any of them. Yeah. Oh, it Paul Reese. That's the um. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's his name. Okay. Yeah. He was excellent. I really like. I really enjoyed him here, and I enjoyed him in Saltburn too. Yeah, he's good. He just has a really good presence about him. I I think, and and also too, he fits very believably into uh, these period uh, films. Oh yeah. Now, going over to Joaquin. <laughs> I love Joaquin. I think he's one of our greatest living actors today. Even he. With his amazing talents, sometimes just can't make something work. And this is a case where I genuinely really did feel there were moments where this really was working. And then there were times where it wasn't. And the times where it was working was when he was being this crybaby, petulant man child. Mm -hmm. 
because Joaquin Phoenix, if, if, if he does one thing extremely well, he does pathetic very well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What he didn't do well in this movie for me was the times where Napoleon and maybe this was intentional. You guys tell me if you think it was. But the times where he was supposed to be intimidating or supposed to be putting his foot down and showing his strength towards his enemies. I was hoping to get a little bit of, you know, menacing gladiator style Joaquin in those moments where he would be frightening. And he wasn't. He still just came across as completely pathetic. And maybe that was the point. But I just don't think it worked in favor for what the movie was trying to do, because I think, like I said, I think Joaquin's playing it one way. I think Scott wants it another way. And it's written on the page another way at times. It's the leadership. We're told about what a leader he is and you believe it in the battle scenes. But uh, I don't I don't I never got a sense of weight to him uh, the way I felt we really should in terms of enforcing his will. And it may just be that the the comedy that uh, adds up after a while kind of it works against that believability in terms of authority. But uh, I had the same problem, Matt. Uh, it, it, it just didn't seem to be the kind of person who could really threaten you. I don't know. There were there were some moments where I got maybe it wasn't so much menacing as just like a hardness to him. Yeah, I detected that a bit. That like it it didn't exactly play as like menacing, but it played uh, close enough to it that I understood why like his own soldiers might fear him. Yeah, I I could understand why his soldiers would fear him, but I also couldn't understand why his soldiers were so devoted to him either. Yeah, but then remember that like. They're not seeing a lot of this stuff that, like, we're we see in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I will say this actually. Now, I did think of one example. He, on I think two occasions in this movie, maybe three, uh, when he's on the battlefield, he is willing to ride into battle and not stand on the sidelines, and mm-hmm. that's probably a quality that I think his men. Uh, find admirable in him and willing to then uh, <laughs> there's like one scene in particular where um, they're like s- supposed to arrest him because he's been exiled and then he attempts to come back and stage a coup d'etat and <laughs> he basically says like I fought with you guys and you know we had all these victories together and next thing you know they're basically embracing him back into the fold uh, risking uh, you know execution for for this and you have to convey that this is a guy who people would willingly throw down their lives for. Um, And I don't know if the film ever successfully did that for me outside of those moments where uh, I was taken aback and was surprised at how much he was willing as a character to ride out and get down and dirty with some of the battle scenes that were taking place. Whether that actually historically happened or not is obviously, you know, I, <laughs> this movie, I, I'm sure, is probably not the most historically accurate at times. Oh, it's patently a historical. Like there have been, there was that whole controversy where historians like called it called the trailer out, and Ridley Scott was like, "So what? 
Yeah. <laughs> like it's a movie. It doesn't have to be exactly. And I think that's one of the things that like <laughs> like blowing up the uh the pyramids with cannons. <laughs> yeah, like that clearly yeah. didn't happen and forget which battle it is, but the one where he traps them on the like frozen river or lake or whatever. Like that is also that's an apocryphal story. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But I think that's part of the game that the movie is playing to like show you like these are the stories like these are the you know this is his legend yeah the man the myth the legend yeah, yeah. but but in reality this is shit <laughs> i heard william wallace is seven feet tall yeah <laughs> you know like it it's that kind of things and like yeah okay he's shooting the pyramids like you see like that got that gets laughs because it's ridiculous like why would you shoot at the fucking pyramids <laughs> and then like the whole thing with him i and this was an issue for me throughout this movie i think it's just an issue for me with period movies in general i think period like war movies is that i can't help but feeling with these things like just like we've seen it all before like there's nothing new to be done with these old school old technology battles to make them feel any more exciting or fresh than what we've already gotten from so many movies and so like yeah ooh, he traps them on a frozen lake and they fall under pretty cool right but then it's just like all like this screen of blue yeah one thing that was new in the battle scenes that I'd never seen before is I'd never seen a horse take a cannonball to the chest. Oh, my oh God. My God. <laughs> that completely, like, like startled me. <laughs> I was shocked at that. I did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> but but it but it starts a very important moment that without the horse. He then starts running on foot to lead the battle. And that was when I I found the character very inspiring. I really did like the Battle of Austerlitz in this movie, um, actually. I know that that is probably to your point, Dan, you know, traditional cavalry charge and battle formation tactics and things of that nature. Like, I, I, I do understand that. At least you do get the benefit of, okay, frozen lake, cannon fire. I and I think what makes that scene though stand out is the scene. Uh, well, when they do reveal the cannons and they're shooting them into the ice, the music and the sound work really goes a long way to help elevate that moment of that scene. I think a lot and and the cinematography too. I think you know I I, I hear what you're saying in terms of like a sea of blue, <laughs> no pun intended. But I mean I really do think there are lots of moments in this movie where Darius Wolski is like shooting the hell out of this film i'll say this like i don't think it looks bad and in many places i think it looks good and i think it for the most part the battle scenes are well done uh you know they're well edited well shot all that sort of thing but the disconnect comes from you're not invested in the story or the character yeah that's that's what it is I mean, yeah, it's just like, I don't know, like I watch the battle scenes and I'm going like, okay, this is good, but I'm not, it's not exciting. It's also because like it is, you know, history, like we know obviously he wins pretty much everything until Waterloo, right? But yeah, and maybe that's part of it. Like we already know that he's going to win. So it's like, okay, this is nice. <laughs> no, it's just really Scott flexing at that point. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm happy for because quite frankly – how many filmmakers are getting a chance to flex on this scale? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he's doing it. He has always done the damn thing and done it better than anyone else. I just don't know that he's flexing all that much, this particular movie. But here's the thing, though. Take a movie where there really isn't battle scenes on this scale. Instead, the quote-unquote battles in this movie are on an intimate, more personal scale. And it's such a better film, and that's The Last Duel, which I think is one of Scott's best films over the last 10, 15 years or so, alongside The Martian, in my opinion. But Napoleon ups it with this huge sense of scale with hundreds of extras and all of these bells and whistles for these battle scenes. And like you said, Dan, technically... Brilliant, well edited, well shot. I think the sound work again, I gotta highlight the sound work. I think the sound work in this movie is really, really well done. But if you're not invested in the character and the story is also kind of leaving you feeling a little shaky at times, because right out of the gate of this movie, this film I think has tremendous uh gaps where things sort of happen, but it seems to be pieces of missing connective tissue, if you will, to make certain things make sense. And so I'm kind of like held up still on stuff that happened like 20 minutes ago while a battle scene is happening. And I'm just not invested. I don't care. And Dan, to your point, when it is based on history and we know the outcome, you got to work doubly hard, triple hard to get your audience to care at that point. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that this film does that, unfortunately. No, I think the gaps, the time gaps show. And it, after a while, it be, it felt like a series of events that lurch one to the next, to yeah. the next without, a, without a steady flow. And that's not, un, that's not like the best of the Ridley Scott epic uh, movies. Like at one point it goes from a three person council to him becoming emperor. And it's like, how? W- w- wait, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> and then like the Congress in Vienna is something that, you know, is very, very important within history. And it's like kind of just, you know, it just moves on by at a clip and it's over. And it's like, oh, OK, I guess we're not spending time on this or its implications. And then by the time we get to the end of the film, I've seen a lot of people say this, and I, I agree with them. For so many movies that I feel like have had rushed endings this year, this was a movie where I just felt like it kept going and going and going. And by the time it was over, I was like, how is it that 157 minutes can feel longer than the 200 and something whatever minutes of Killers of the Flower Moon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it, it didn't help that the Battle of Waterloo is just so long. Uh, I think the the first two battles, Toulon and Austerlitz, are just are crisply edited and just were just about the right length. But this one just went on and on. And just please, we know how it ends. Wrap it up. And and that's and I, I felt very uncomfortable the last 20 minutes or so. Well, I think another tough thing about the last like 20 minutes is that he's exiled. And you say, and you think to yourself, if you know your history, oh yeah, 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 Napoleon was exiled. That's right. He goes to that little island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he comes back, and then it's like, wait a minute, the movie's not over. You know, <laughs> there's still more to go. Yeah. Then he gets exiled again. 
Yeah, it's just a a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, I love that at one point he has a line of dialogue where he says something to the effect of um, he's not subject to petty insecurity. (laughs) (laughs) It's like it's like it's like Trump in uh, the Clinton debate saying I've got a great temperament or something like that, you know. I, I think about that line a lot, mostly because, though, how the relationship that he has with Josephine is portrayed be- in a way where sexually they're very active with one another, but she's unable to produce an heir for him. And there is this question of, well, is it her who's unable to produce the heir or is it him? And it's so funny because the solution that they eventually come up with is one that I was like, wait a minute, you're the freaking emperor. You couldn't do this like earlier, you know, (laughs) I was wondering why it took them so long to, you know, do what they did. Um, And what they end up doing is something that I was like, oh, that's that's terrible. Like, I feel so bad for that young girl. Yeah. But 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 hey, you know what? Uh, Times. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it did do a good job, though, of helping me to better understand his behavior and what ultimately was driving him throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, sexual um, impotence, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I was really hoping he was shooting blanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, once again, though, yeah. like, when it reveals that it's that, that it's actually her and not him, it, I just kind of saw that as like, uh, once again, another slap in the face towards uh, the Josephine character, even if it is you know, I don't I don't know if it is, but like I'm assuming it is accurate to history or maybe that's how the history book simply, you know, wrote it. I don't know. But it, it I just feel like that character was portrayed in a way that um, I, I could see it like it, it angering a lot of today's modern audiences. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, it it it, it, it does reflect another sensibility at another time. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing. Like, it's so another time. And, like, that's it, it, it's meant to, I think, provoke that kind of response. Yeah. I mean, he ends up putting her up, like, in a house with servants and all this, even though they're no longer legally married anymore. I thought that scene where they were getting separated was a good moment for Kirby, actually, because you could see, like, how much she didn't want to go through with it. But the way the movie has, like, built her up to that point, it, it's kind of instead, like, not coming across as her upset over the divorce because she loves him. And it's more like she's upset because she's going to lose out on this money and power. I don't know. I think they did have an emotional bond. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they did, I just don't, once again, I don't think the movie did a good enough job of portraying that. And instead, like in the third act, it just almost seems to me that she's more concerned with living a life of luxury uh, with or without him, you know? Well, I think especially after he shows himself to be a, the little bitch she hoped he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? That makes sense. She was less interested, I think. And also, too, like, she cheats on him, yes, but the movie never goes out of its way to explain, like, why she's cheating on him and to turn that back on him and make him out to be the villain. Instead, the movie, you know, flips it and says, nope, yeah, she cheated. She's she's the one to blame. You're right. And I just I, that that like just didn't sit well with me. Yeah. No, I don't blame you. 
Yeah, but we may be bringing our own sensibility there. No, no, totally. Yeah. I understand that. It's just, once again, to me, it's confusing in the sense of what did David Scarpa want to accomplish? What did Ridley Scott want to accomplish? What did Joaquin want to accomplish? What did Vanessa Kirby want to accomplish? I think we may never know until we see the director's cut, at least, for what Ridley wanted. Yeah. And that's another thing, too. Like, I don't understand that in this day and age, if you're going to go straight to Apple streaming with a four hour cut eventually anyway, I don't understand why you would even bother to release the 157 cut in theaters. I don't understand. No, because this is not like a thing where this 157 cut exists for a couple of years and then like five years or whatever down the line we find out that there's a longer cut coming they literally announced a longer cut and that it would be available on apple prior to the film releasing theatrically (laughs) it's just very weird right which which like that sends a terrible signal then to the audience of saying this is not the real version (laughs) yeah or like what is it, it it's even more confusing of like what is the real version the version that you can see in theaters or this 4 hour apple plus exclusive version i think it's going to be that 4 hours <laughs> yeah like, they're setting us up for that at least like why <laughs> and it's you know and like i said i already go through this with kingdom of heaven all the time i always have to preface by saying oh the the, uh, the theatrical already extended a cut you know because to me, it's like the extended cut of Kingdom of Heaven is so much better than the theatrical to the point that like I don't even consider the theatrical to be real. <laughs> you know, like I probably will never, <laughs> ever watch it. It's almost like um, what's another good example? Like Amadeus. When was the last time you watched a theatrical cut of Amadeus? Well, when was the last time the theatrical cut of Amadeus was available anywhere? OK, yeah. fair point. Fair point. That dances with wolves. There's an, some other one where it's like only the director's cut are available now. We will never see what people originally saw in theaters, and I think that is um, not the way these things should go. No, not at all. Which is why I wish Sony had just said, you know what? If Martin Scorsese is willing to release a three and a half hour film in theaters, we can too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else regarding the crafts? that you guys want to bring up? I think the costumes uh, look really good. Oh, yeah. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. That was definitely a highlight for me throughout. Particularly what both of them wear during the coronation. And everybody else in that scene, too, around them. <laughs> yeah. every Everyone everyone looks great. But the, the scene, in that scene in particular, they were very impressive. A feast for the eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What what I liked about the costumes is they they seemed to blend in with the film in the sense that they weren't eye popping costumes. They just seemed like what people would wear, but just yeah. a little more stylish. Well, uh, something that somebody else uh, brought up that I have to agree with is that Darius Wolski tends to shoot a lot of these scenes in a very monochromatic uh, sort of visual aesthetic that doesn't allow for the costumes to pop. Mm-hmm. off the screen in the same way that you would find in maybe some other period films, especially with regards to color. But there's such an opulence to the costumes that I, I think they still manage to stand out despite this. Mm-hmm. And then you put together all those crowds and just a level of scale involved, too. And it's pretty impressive work, I think. Yeah. Also, too, this is not so much like about the makeup work necessarily, but 
Um, I do want to call attention to the violence in this movie. Uh, I know we mentioned a bit with the horse earlier and the cannon fire, but this might be uh, one of Ridley Scott's, I think, most brutal movies he's made to date. No, I think that's fair. Uh, there were there were a few jaw dropping moments in this. It's like, wow, I haven't seen this on screen in a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know he's done like the Alien Covenant and Prometheus films where, you know, it's got their fair share of gore. And um, but um, I haven't really seen him. Uh, I'm trying to think because Black Hawk Down's a violent film. Kingdom of Heaven's also pretty violent. Uh, Robin Hood, I don't think what. Yeah, that's the thing. Robin Hood wasn't violent. Neither was Exodus Gods and Kings, really. No. Um, so, yeah, we haven't really seen him execute like this level of violence on this scale uh, in a historical setting since. Jesus, since Kingdom of Heaven. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And if you haven't watched that in a while, then Gladiator back in 2000 probably is coming to mind. Yeah. Gladiator is pretty brutal, too. Oh, yeah. If I remember. Oh, I, I just rewatched it recently. And yeah, there's definitely some moments in that where <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> I just wanted to say something about the production design. It's again, it's it's it doesn't pop. It's not showy, but it felt absolutely right in every scene uh, for me, at least. Yeah, it never for me called attention to itself in a way that was ever distracting. It just always felt right. Yeah, I particularly like I believe it was in Russia, if I remember correctly, uh, the burning of the city. Yeah, I really like the way that was done. And also, too, when he arrives and it's all completely deserted. Oh yeah, I love that one because like that's one of those things where they the legend is like you're like oh you know they were they would rather abandon their city than fight Napoleon <laughs> and it, instead in this movie it was presented as a like you no know, like he thinks he's so great like what'll he do when he get there there's no city for him to take right it's very eerie. Which yeah. is just never hit to his massive ego. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, speaking of uh, massive ego, <laughs> I let out a nice chuckle every now and then when there would be a wide shot and Joaquin Phoenix was just a foot or maybe a foot and a half shorter than everybody else in the frame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they didn't like make him comically short, but I was like, ah, OK, yeah, like he's not as tall as any of these other guys. And I was I was just really appreciating that level of detail yeah. here. <laughs> You know, they had one bit in Egypt where he, you know, comic bit with a sarcophagus. That, yes. That, that, was, that was pretty good. Oh, that was Where he brought out the stool. Yeah. yeah, that was good. That's good. All right. So uh, why don't we uh, toss it over to final thoughts here? Um, I wish that there was more to discuss. I don't know why, but I headed into this review thinking that there would be more, which leads me to this conclusion, which is it's a very hollow film where a lot of things happen, but with very little substance behind it. Uh, with that said, final thoughts, Tom O'Brien. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Life sucks as a grown-up.
All right. You think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> well, it's one of those films where I think if I ever have an occasion to see it a second time, I don't think I'll find anything new about it. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. Unless if it's that four hour cut. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's the the thing that the uh, there's the it's so accomplished in the text that you just wish some more thought was just given to getting a proper, well thought out tone consistently through the whole thing. And especially comparing it to The Last Duel, there is, you know, they have the, that the Ben Affleck comedy scenes in The Last Duel. Those are mm-hmm. such that is so much more naturally um, integrated yeah. into that story. And here, all of the all of the laughs are just just jarring uh, in the midst of everything else. So I, for me, the problem is tone, and I don't think that's going to improve on a second second viewing. Uh, I, I reluctantly agree. And maybe that's because I want to hold out hope that the four hour cut will somehow bring things together and make me see the greatness that Ridley Scott saw in this material. But I don't know. I also think, too, sometimes Ridley Scott, like if you listen to him in interviews, he knows what he's talking about. He understands the substance most of the time of what it is that he's capturing and how to capture it, too. But. Maybe it's because he moves very quickly or maybe it's because he's spending time focusing on something else or another because he is such a technical, you know, wizard. Maybe things just get lost and what's in his head just doesn't translate as well to the screen as he thinks it is. I don't know. That's the only other thing I could think of, though, because like I listen to him in interviews and I'm like, the guy definitely knows what he's talking about. And he's hyper intelligent. But I, I, I look at the final product and I'm like, what you're describing is not up on that screen. Dan, what about you? Final thoughts? I want to like this movie a lot more than I do. I think that it's so like. I think it has a very unique voice and perspective for this kind of movie. And I think that that is necessary, not just for this subject, but for the world currently. Like if you're going to make a Napoleon biopic, I think now is the time. And I think this is the sort of a tone I think that movie should take. But it just can't keep up that tone all the way throughout but those moments when it works are so good and i think joaquin phoenix is just really kind of incredible in the part i mean yeah he's doing what we would kind of expect but he makes those comedic moments just sing like they don't feel like they fit in the world but that almost seems like the point um, because he doesn't fit. You know, Napoleon doesn't fit into this world. He's not a great man. He's No, he's trying to make the world fit into his world. Exactly. And I think that's where the movie gets tripped up is in trying to get that across. And I don't think – I think the direction needed to have more of a point of view in order to fully bring that out because there's only so much the screenplay and a performance can do. 
And based on the available evidence, I don't know that Ridley Scott is good at that between this and House of Gucci. (laughs) No, we've had two films in a row now that have proven that. But yet it's interesting because if you give him the ability to go all the way in one direction. He'll give you great. Right. Like The Martian, just take it as a comedy with more comedy and some drama works. Going with a film like um, like like Tom said, like The Last Duel, more drama with splashes of comedy work. Trying to do like this 50 50 split here. Not working. Okay, um, I got a couple of things here. Um, really like the guillotine sound in the uh, beginning of the film and the way that that was all done throughout the opening sequence, uh, depicting the uh, French Revolution, the execution of Marie Antoinette, and then the titles, too, being done with like the Quill's uh, script writing, I thought was uh, a pretty cool choice as well. Mm-hmm. There is this um, reoccurring uh, use of voiceover through letters, which I also was a really good choice um, for the screenplay, but there are times where it's consistent and then there are times where the movie just seems to forget about it and it then it will randomly pop up after such a prolonged period of time and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, we we have sequences like this again. Actually, I did like that. Yeah. That aspect a lot, yeah. And it did bring Josephine back into the film, even mm-hmm. in the woods. Yep. Yeah. Uh, shooting the cannon fire into the, uh, the townspeople, uh, like in the middle of the streets. Oh my gosh. Ooh. Like that was, whew. there was a point in the movie, like after that, <laughs> you think you're so great because you have boats line. I wanted to shout back at him like, and you think you're so great because you have cannons. <laughs> like that was the whole of his strategy. Shoot cannons. Yeah, pretty much. Like <laughs> that's the other thing too, is that for such a brilliant military strategist, I don't ever I wish the movie did a better job of explaining his battle strategy and my only my only interpretation as to why the movie doesn't is because the movie itself didn't bother to do the proper research into his military strategy either I just don't think that the movie was at all interested in his military strategy so much as the outcome of that military strategy. Because, okay, yeah, he's a great military strategist, but in the end, he accomplished nothing but the loss of lives. Right. I did like that, too, at the end of the movie. Three million died under his reign. Yeah. That is a chilling use of, you know, end of film credits scroll wall of text yep like that it's perfect yeah that worked how he could go like into russia with six hundred thousand men and leave with forty thousand <laughs> crazy absolutely crazy um i do love speaking of the cannon fire i love that every time the cannons would fire he would cover his ears this is great <laughs> yes that has provided some really great meat potential as well of all these clips of joaquin covering his ears <laughs> There was one point where I can't remember what the context was of the meeting exactly, but he's just asleep. (laughs) Yes. He was knocked out. It reminded me of Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne taking a nap uh, during a a Wayne board meeting. (laughs) Uh, I know we said it earlier at the beginning, but I have to say it again. That whole I'm enjoying my breakfast uh, bit was so funny to me. 
Like these guys are coming in to arrest you, probably publicly execute you. I'm enjoying my breakfast. <laughs> D- did I miss here at one point? But did he oink like a pig during one scene with Kirby? Um, he definitely made animal noises. Okay. Yes, he did. I don't remember if that was one of them. That but... reminds me, walking out of the theater with you, and I turned to you and went, nom, 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 nom. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was another thing he did. <laughs> yeah, that, that w- it was, yeah. The, the, oh, my God, that line that Vanessa Kirby has. Oh, oh no, no! If you look, if you look down, then you will see a surprise. And once you see it, you will always want it. <laughs> the way Joaquin's oh, eyes slowly <laughs> glance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I when I heard her deliver that, I kept imagining Bugs Bunny with the eyes going out of his head. <laughs> oh, I, I immediately just thought of. Um, Margot Robbie and DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, yeah, that's true. <sighs> yeah, okay, that's it for my final thoughts. God damn it. Like, I really wish I had more. And this just goes back to what I was saying before, which is that this movie presents a lot of information, but it doesn't give me a reason to care about the information. A lot of important historical events are moved on pretty quickly from one scene to the next. There's not really a lot of context given to certain plot developments within the historical context of the story. And there are things that I think could have been better explained to the audience for them to better understand his military strategy, like we were talking about, or um, also just not saying so much like his mindset, because that part of it I did get, but I really wish that they had given more to Josephine to make her a stronger character overall within the framework of the story. I understand once again, the times and I don't want to see a girl boss like in these times because that's just not, you know, that's just not true. But also considering how much of the movie is also historically inaccurate as well. I think that they could have just given her a bit more to do. And to not make her character just feel so, at times, as pathetic as he is, honestly, I didn't get that strength that I think the movie thought it was conveying with her. I I just didn't, I, I didn't get it. It was not communicated effectively for me. Joaquin is good. I, I do think when uh, those, especially those comedic bits happen, I think he is really, really funny in those moments. And on a technical level, I mean, aces all around. Cinematography, costumes, sound. Like the cannon fire sound work in this movie. I like like the sound of just them going into the ice in that battle. Oh, my God. Yeah. Great stuff. Oh, there's also that, that, that attack on the ships in the harbor. I think it happens in like the first act, right? Yeah, that's the first act. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that, too. Like, that's another really cool uh, showcase in this movie. Uh, so, yeah, on a technical level, like, this movie, like, is pretty damn good. But I I just, like, I, I really, really, really did not think heading into this film that I would be giving this the same rating that I gave House of Gucci 
and I'm double checking now to see what I did give House of Gucci because I want to make sure I'm saying that correctly. I gave House of Gucci. Oh, no, no. OK, I gave House of Gucci a, a slightly lower rating than this. So, OK, this is actually fair. But still, for it to be in line as far as a disappointment goes with that movie, considering the potential that was here and me being a fan of this type of movie. Oh, this hurts my soul. I'm giving this a five out of ten. Mm. Dan, what about you? I am giving it a six out of ten, mostly because while I was watching it, I overall had a good experience. I wasn't ever really bored like I was with the House of Gucci. But it also wasn't like thoroughly engaged like I was with um, The Last Duel. So it's just on the good side of average, but not by much. You know what I'm doing right now? What? I'm throwing pieces of my food at you. <laughs> telling you to go away. <laughs> when he did that to the little girls in, at the end of the movie, I was losing my oh. mind. <laughs> oh. I was like, this movie wants to be a comedy. It really wants to be that. Are you not entertained? Yeah. <laughs> there were points. Yep. There were moments. Tom, what about you? Were you entertained enough to give this a good rating? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there are elements in this. I, I really do love the uh, Battle on the Ice. I mean, that's, I think, one of his greatest set pieces in the last 20 years. Uh, and, and there are elements in Joaquin's performance that I think are really good. Most of the battle scenes work for me, except for the length of Waterloo. But if someone asked me, did Napoleon work? Is it a good movie? I can't say that it is. And so that, uh, and a six to me would say, yeah, it just squeaks by and it doesn't squeak by for me. So I'm giving it a five. Okay. As far as awards potential goes for this movie, where are you guys at on it today? Because I'm at it on two categories, but most of that has to do with recency bias. And I say that as, you know, speaking for Academy voters, I think that they will. I think some of them will watch it and enough so at this point in the year that it could manage a nomination or two. I think yeah. it's contending for costumes and sound, and that's pretty much it. You don't think visual effects could happen? Oh, well, yeah, visual effects. Yeah, that, that could happen. Yeah. It's such a wide open category for visual effects this year. Yeah, it can go in any direction. I think uh, costumes is the default. It's mostly hairstyling in this, and they and hairstyling doesn't really tip, tip the nominations very nah, often. No, they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. And I think the production design is good, and I think it has a shot, um, but I think cinematography and sound, worthy as the sound is, it, it, the, those categories are just too stacked um to get in i think especially if it's perceived as a flop so you think it could be just a lone costume nominee i think a costume with the shot of production design yeah because costume and production design too do tend to go hand in hand yeah i have it currently in sound wait i lied i don't have it in sound anymore 
Wait, do I? Am I looking at the right? Yeah, I do have it in sound. Sorry. (laughs) I was looking at somebody else's predictions. I have it in sound and I have it in costumes. I have it in number four in costumes and number three in sound. But also, too, I look at all of our sound predictions across the team and they are wildly all over the place. So who knows, especially with only five slots. But those battle sequences definitely, for me at least, did a lot to make me believe, oh, that could definitely get in, especially like the cannon fire in this movie. I don't know if it was the sound system that which we saw this film on, Dan, or what it was, but there were certain moments in this where I was like, I've heard cannon fire in other movies. I know I have. Clearly I have. But why is it? sounds so much more impactful here. Yeah, it, they definitely sounded, I don't know, like not louder, but they they like hit harder. Yeah, I think that there just was more emphasis placed on them in this movie. Yeah. To your point, that's like his specialty, I guess. <laughs> just throw cannons at them. So they really wanted to make sure that they had impact and they had a ferocity and and brutality to them i i think it's getting in for sound i do i'm gonna stick with that prediction for now um but costumes i think i i think on its worst day i think it still gets costumes yeah i mean given the history of the uh academy in terms of the kinds of historical epics that automatically get it i think it's almost a given you disagree dan no i i agree okay but yeah, I mean, everything else, sorry, Ridley, you're still going to have to wait for that elusive Oscar that you should have gotten for Gladiator for producing the film, but you didn't produce the film. And so here we are all this time later. And now you're making Gladiator 2. Hoping lightning strikes twice, I suppose. Um, Joaquin. Joaquin's funny. I, I like I, I wonder if Joaquin even cares about this like performance, you know, or this movie. It's amazing to me, though, that he hadn't worked with Scott since Gladiator and to see the difference in the type of performance and the type of actor he was back in 2000 compared to 2023 is just night and day. (laughs) (laughs) But he's such a unbelievable actor. God, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of him. Truly. I am. I just don't, I just, I just really don't think this is one of his best performances. I really don't. I'm not saying it's bad, but he's done such better work that, this doesn't even like I don't even think this ranks in top 10 for me. I think that one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it is context. Like this is just like not the performance that I would expect of this character in this kind of movie. And I think that that is, that is worthy of praise, even though I agree it's not one of his best performances. But it's so unexpected and so different yeah. that yeah. I I like it quite a lot. I can see that. Now, they did announce that Vanessa Kirby was moving to supporting. Do you think that she'll pop up anywhere on the precursor trail or do you think it's just not happening at all? Who would have ever run her lead? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was prior to us seeing the movie. We didn't know at the time. So. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. So, she, no, she's definitely supporting. I, I don't think that. No, 
No, that's you not going to happen. BAFTA, maybe? I, that's what I was going to say. Because BAFTA is weird nowadays. I could see that just happening. I don't think they would even go for this, though. Like, they may love her, but I think the character is just too messed. There's not enough there there for her to play, even. Yeah. yeah. I immediately dropped her from my predictions yeah. once I saw this movie. That's pretty safe. All right. Well, that'll do it here for our review of Napoleon. Dan Baer, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me on, we're still calling it Twitter, at Dance and Dan on Film. And you can find me on Letterboxd and post at Dance and Dan. Tom O'Brien, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And my reviews on Instagram at Tom O'Brien on Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time. Such a good line. Thank you. Thank you. So good. Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) The line delivery of the fucking year. If one good thing came out of this movie, Uh, (laughs) that uh, destiny has brought me this lamb chop. uh, (laughs) That is destined to be memed to oblivion because you can uh, put anything in there. Destiny has brought me this fill in the blank. (laughs) When I heard that line, I just thought of the uh, lamb chop puppet. Oh, and God. just like uh, mouth, yeah. mouth agape, like listening to that line, like. <gasps> <laughs> hey there, I'm Hannah and I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.